Welcome to The Report Card, where we evaluate efforts to improve the lives of families, schools, and students. On February 14, 2018, a gunman opened fire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, killing 17 students and staff members. It was the deadliest high school shooting in American history. In the following weeks and months, debates raged about what could have prevented the tragedy, and heated conversations about gun control and mental health policy took center stage. For Andrew Pollack, father of 18-year-old victim Meadow Pollack, and education researcher Max Eden, Parkland was the most avoidable mass shooting in American history. In their book published last year, Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students, Pollock and Eden offer their take on how the shooting could have been avoided. In this episode of The Report Card, I brought Max Eden on to discuss the book and the lessons about school safety he thinks we should all be taking away. Max, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Nat. So, first of all, tell me about the genesis of the book, Max. Can you walk me through what happened between hearing about the shooting, Valentine's Day 2018, and your decision to collaborate with Andrew Pollock? Yeah. A couple of days after the shooting, there was a, an article written in the Washington Post that basically said, you know, the Broward County School District, where the shooting took place, was on the cutting edge of this new approach to school discipline and school safety to replace punitive discipline, replace arrests with restorative interventions. And they said, rather than fall through the cracks, he appears to have been the subject, the shooter appears to have been the subject of many interventions, and maybe they just hit the limits of what could be done. And this is Broward County, Florida. Correct. And situate that for us, that's South Florida, right? That's South Florida, just north of Miami. It's the sixth largest school district in America, 270,000 students. Okay. Alexander Russo, an education journalist who covers education journalism, saw this article and said, this piece makes Max Eden's argument, which it almost did in inverse, right? I've, the argument that I've been making had been that these efforts to fix the so-called school-to-prison pipeline by lowering suspensions, expulsions, and arrests can backfire because they frequently lead to problems just being swept under the rug. And so in the few more days following that, more students came forward and said, he threatened to kill me. He threatened to rape my friends. He brought a knife to school. He brought bolts to school. We knew it was him while it was happening. We saw something. We said something. Nothing was done. After that pattern became clear, I wrote an article in City Journal kind of posing the question, how did the Parkland shooter slip through the cracks? Laying out the policy on the one hand, the student statements on the other hand, and kind of just posing the question, it appears that there may be a connection. So you'd been making some arguments for a long time mm -hmm. that lowering the punitive nature of student disciplinary systems mm -hmm. in public schools can have potentially negative side effects, right? If yep. you get too loose, you're just going to have more disorder that can follow and a lack of safety. And Alexander Russo says, boy, this looks like this can happen. And you're telling me that as you just sort of monitored the the coverage of it, you saw more and more indicators pointing that direction. Yeah, I saw I saw what I thought was a pretty clear pattern and a pattern kind of worth posing a question of. As soon as I posed the question, it unfortunately and perhaps inevitably became the answer for kind of conservative right-wing media. Because <laughs> right. on the one hand, the gun control narrative was gaining steam and so... And has know, been the, the dominant narrative. And has been. The but that's not super popular on the It's on not the right. super popular. You know, I mean, they don't want to, you know, when you see students coming forward and blaming Marco Rubio, blaming the NRA, there's, there's a, a lot of defensiveness that can take place. Yeah. And so the question that I posed became an answer very quickly for, you know, folks like Rush Limbaugh and Coulter, Breitbart, and Coulter kind of rewrote 
the piece that I wrote, but t- titled it "The School to Mass Murder Pipeline" and made it a little bit more declarative. She has quite a uh, <laughs> quite a gift. On the flip side of that, a lot of journalists took Superintendent Robert Runcie's denial that this is fake news. He said fake news because the Parkland shooter was not referred to the Promise Program, a diversionary program, nor did he commit a Promise eligible defense while in high school. The term while in high school made me very, very suspicious because those words must be there for a reason. But it was, I think, in large part case closed for the mainstream media once it was posed from a conservative side and once the superintendent dismissed it as fake news. I, however, wanted to know if I was right. (laughs) Right. I found an avenue to travel down to Broward through a student journalist who made contact with me. He was preparing a report and I kind of acted somewhat as a mentor to him as he raised these questions at a local level. I asked him to introduce me to some teachers, some students. I traveled down. While I was down there, Andrew Pollack heard that there was somebody from D.C. looking into this whole Promise Program discipline thing, found my number from him, and texted me to ask me to come over to his house. And so I came over. I explained to him what I was doing. I gave him a couple questions to ask at the next statewide safety commission that was commissioned by the legislature to investigate the tragedy. And a few days later, he said via text, thank you so much for your help, Max. You're going to be a tremendous asset in helping me find justice for my daughter's murder. And I had just, you know, I came down to try to find a couple anecdotes, a couple statements, a couple declaratives that I could either say, oh, yeah, see, like this really might have been or satisfy myself that it wasn't, in which case, say some, say something to that effect. But when I got that text, I knew I had to come back again. And when I came back, I was introed not by a random student, but by the father of Meadow Pollock. And I talked to enough students and enough teachers in my second trip to realize, oh, my gosh, like the story is bigger than simply the discipline angle. And it's bigger than an article can do justice to. So he and I decided to team up and, and write it into a book. Well, let's get into what the book says. You and Andrew argue in the book that Parkland was the most avoidable mass murder in American history. First of all, that's that's your statement, right? Yes, I'm saying it. And so what made it so avoidable? The corollary statement to that in the book is that if one individual in the Broward County School District made one responsible decision about the shooter, it could have been avoided. The number of counterfactuals where just a reasonable human exercise of judgment could have averted the course of events every single step of the way that was there. But you can't call what happened a failure necessarily because every wrong judgment made by somebody with authority over him in the school system made perfect sense given the incentives that they were operating under. So, you know, there are kind of three phases to the Nicholas Cruz story. Well, let me yeah. let me just park this for a second to sure. make clear what your argument is. Yeah. On the one hand, Nicholas Cruz did this and certainly bears mm-hmm. responsibility. He also had issues, major issues, and that that goes into that. And there were authorities in Broward that had the opportunity to do something. But to clarify, you're making the case that it's the policy environment Mm -hmm. that really kept those authorities from acting to prevent this student who was disturbed from moving forward with this atrocity. Yeah, that is the argument. When you look kind of instance by instance at what he did and how he was responded to, and, you know, one can always play armchair quarterback, but there are some pretty egregious situations where you would have a hard time seeing yourself making that decision in a vacuum. But if you think about the environment that you're operating under 
as a professional, if you were one of these counselors, if you were one of these administrators, you could see yourself making these bad decisions too. Nicholas Cruz, give me the thumbnail version of this kid's history at Broward Schools. Nicholas Cruz was kicked out of private pre-K for biting and scratching kids. When he attended public pre-K, public elementary school, he had to be put in a harness to ride the school bus. He was never able to be in a normal classroom setting K through five for more than a few months on end without causing extreme chaos, violence, disruption. When he knew he just middle school, they try to mainstream him into a normal middle school. His behavior there gets so bad that not only do they require a security escort to accompany him through the hallways, they also require his mom to come and accompany the security escort accompanying him through the hallways. He evinces a almost daily fixation with guns and killing and terrorizes the school. It, however, takes about five months of paperwork to send him to a specialized school where he very much needed to go. Where At he, what point? That would have been halfway through his seventh grade year. So just real quick, yeah. most of the time kids' school histories like this are kept from view. How do you <clears throat> know these things? We gain part of the knowledge through a lot of interviews, right? I mean, right. administrators would, were not willing to speak to us, but sure. teachers were, students were. We were gotcha. able to put together a lot of the story that way. After I got a lot of the story, I said to Andy, you do realize we're going to be acting as your daughter's murderer's defense attorney in the court of public opinion because our argument is it's the system's fault, which will be his lawyer's argument. And he was like, yeah, I get that. And like, well, we could approach them and ask for his full records. and. Andy approached his daughter's murder as defense attorney and said, if you give me all of his records, I'll take the stand of the trial and tear into the school district and tear into the sheriff's office. And so we were able to obtain, you know, get around FERPA and obtain his full educational records. So he was sent to the specialized school where his behavior continues to be so egregious that at the end of his first semester there, in the first school year, they write a note to his private psychiatrist to basically say, this kid terrifies us. He's told us that he dreams of killing and being covered in blood, his extreme mood lability. We've tried to take away sharp objects in the house, but the mom can't find a hatchet. They were terrified of this kid. After a few months of good behavior in the next year, they said, oh yeah, he's ready to attend a traditional public school. And he seems to be very interested in guns. This is only a very slight paraphrase. So let's put him in JROTC for a semester and see how he does. Junior ROTC, that's the young army. Yes. Um, I mean, the school district took a student who was never able to sustain engagement in a traditional public school setting, who consistently talked about his fixation with guns and killing, who had literally said that he dreams of killing and being covered in blood, and they gave him a toy gun to practice shooting with immediately upon setting foot in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Hmm. When he got to MSD, I have very good reason to believe from statements to the police, statements to me, that his misbehavior was kind of systematically swept under the rug, that his behavior was somewhat better than middle school, but still pretty disturbing. It was, however, for the most part, not documented. One small but I think compelling data point on that is he was only suspended once in his first full semester there on a day when his traditional assistant principal was absent from school. Just to contrast this official record, which seems to have very few marks on it, you also said that students in the school, when the shooting was happening, Mm -hmm. they thought this was Nicholas Cruz. Yeah. So the students knew, even if the disciplinary record didn't evidence this The the students knew, the staff knew. You know, there was a meeting amongst security staff, campus security staff, where they literally said, 
If anybody comes to shoot up the school, it will be him. One time in September of his junior year, where after a series of disturbing events, they decided basically to prohibit him from wearing a backpack to school and to frisk him every single day for fear that he might be carrying a deadly weapon and might use it. This is a student who received, I think, five days of suspension in his semesters at MSD. A student whose disciplinary record in high school looks entirely unremarkable. And this matters for two reasons. One is the initial hypothesis that I had was, you know, did this kid commit criminal offenses that could have been arrested that could have either led to him not being able to buy a gun or a sufficient flag on his record that when the FBI gets tips, which they did, they say, oh, yeah, this kid who... They would see the documentation. They would see the documentation. Sure. Oh, this kid's threatening to shoot at the school. Oh, he you know, committed a hate crime assault at school. Oh, he trespassed. Oh, he brought a knife to school. But these weren't on the record. No. So when so, the superintendent said he didn't commit a crime that was worthy of this particular program in high school, that was true. Well, it was true that there was no... It was true insofar as the record. It was true that there was no record of. <laughs> it was not true that there would there were no crimes committed while in high school right. that could have led to arrest, that could have but led to... But if you looked a, at, at his file or, or, or whatever... If you looked at his file, his file no. would have been clean during that time. But there were also plenty of issues that were sub-criminal that were also not documented. I mean, coming to school in full camo gear, jumping out from behind pillars and cackling at people and startling people, bringing dead animals to school and giving them to other students. There was a pattern of behavior that, if it had been properly documented, could and should have earned him a ticket straight back to his specialized school. Within three weeks of attending Stoneman Douglas full-time, another mother called the police to say, hey, my daughter saw, I think, on Instagram that he was going to get an AR-15 and shoot up the school. And according to the police officer who responded to it, the school was called and informed of it. And there is a email that went out at about that same time saying, we've received a threat through a threat line. We're taking all protocols. Nothing in his record to suggest that it was him. Teachers who will say, yeah, that was what that was about. And generally, when a student with a history of being obsessed with guns and dreaming of murder posts about buying a gun and shooting up a school within a couple of weeks of getting to that school for the first time full time, that's a good sign he should maybe not be at that school. Did this occur while he was a student at the school? This occurred after the fact. Okay, so he actually graduated. Did he graduate from high school? No. He didn't graduate. He left the high school, came back for the shooting. Correct. And the story of his departure is its own kind of sad and policy-influenced story. The school district waited far longer than it should have given his behavior to try to send him back to a specialized school. By the time they tried, he was 18. He had the power to say, I don't want to go back there. He said that verbally. That was not enough for the school district to act on. They had a choice. Do we try to send him back there against his verbally expressed will and right. prepare ourselves to fight this out through the due process, special ed stuff? Or do we prepare the paperwork for him and hand it to him <laughs> and have him sign it so that he is no longer a special ed student, which is what they did. Then once he was no longer special ed, an assistant principal basically counseled him out the back door into credit recovery. And the assistant principal says, like, I'm I'm proud of what I did there. Broward totally tied my hands on the disciplinary route. Didn't admit tied his hands on the special ed route. Sure. But I did what I could to get him out of the school, the one venue that was easy for me to do. All right. So this all sounds bad and like a sad account. Let's nail down the policies that you see mm -hmm. that made this situation possible. It's an intersection of two policies taken too far at the same time in one district. 
One is the push towards leniency, this discipline reform stuff, right? I mean, there was behavior that he exhibited, things that he did that went undocumented, unarrested or simply unnoted. That if it had been arrested or if he had been noted, it could have prevented him from buying a gun or it could have sent him to a place where he would have flourished or if not flourished, at least done okay. Or even, it seems to me, have had the supports that he might have needed for some minimum functioning. Yes. Right? Without the track record, without the documentation. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how you marshal resources that are needed for this situation. Yeah, you you can't make a case that this student needs more help (laughs) based on his behavior if there's no behavior record. Did the teachers that you talked to and the school staff that you talked to, did they say, yes, there is a policy of leniency? Yeah. We're not reporting what's going on? Yes. And the teachers Broward County-wide say that as well. I mean, Broward Teachers Union did a survey. 52% of teachers have feared for their personal safety. I think 70% of teachers, I might be wrong about that, but I think about 70% of teachers have said that these disciplinary policies have taken things in the wrong direction. Out of 1,887 teachers surveyed, only three said that if a student assaults them, he will get arrested. (laughs) Seven said the student would get a treat. 39% said the student would get suspended. Half Um, of the teachers said that they felt feared for their safety at some point. Yeah. It's a very clear, and at this point, not just by me, documented leniency problem within the Broward County School District. The other problem that runs into is what can be the excesses of least restrictive environment, special ed, IDEA, trying to be inclusive of students, which can, for some special ed students, be a great boon, but for others, be a detriment both to themselves and their classmates. So a student like Nicholas Cruz, he was designated with a disability of emotionally and behaviorally disturbed because he was was emotionally (laughs) and behaviorally disturbed. Yes. And... If you make it very difficult to document bad behavior by emotionally and behaviorally disturbed students, you make it very difficult to get them into the help that they need and make it very easy to push them into settings that are not right for them. And teachers I talked to in the special ed centers have basically said, yeah, the school district has made it basically impossible to get kids into these centers. In these centers, we feel substantial pressure to get them out. So the school district is mainstreaming students in traditional classrooms that are not suitable for them, where their teachers don't know how to handle them, and where the students around them pay a substantial cost. So why? You're saying that this is being done regularly, the teachers are backing your account, or you are reporting their account, I should say. Mm-hmm. Why? Because there's a, there's a great kind of public relations case to be made out of all of this, right? I mean, if you are a superintendent, Robert Runcie, you say, we're fixing the school-to-prison pipeline. Look, we've got suspensions down. We've got arrests down. We've got expulsions down. Everything is getting better. The numbers prove it, <laughs> right? I mean, they decreased arrests by about 70% in the Broward County School District. They did that, of course, by allowing students to commit four misdemeanors a year before a school resource officer could even be talked to. (laughs) There's a great public relations case to be made by promoting these policies if you're a school district leader. Superintendent Robert Runcie became pretty nationally famous for his reforms, which allegedly fixed the school-to-prison pipeline because they lowered suspensions, they lowered expulsions, they lowered arrests. You look at the numbers, the numbers don't lie. People around the district took great pride, like, oh, look, Arrests are down by 70%. It's a wonderful talking point. And and really quickly, just some context around this, a lot of times 
district context makes difference. Mm-hmm. What kind of district is Broward? Is this sort of like an inner city tough district? Is this a wealthier district? How does Stoneman fit in? It's a very diverse district. Okay. It's 270,000 students right. over one of the, the, the second largest county in Florida. There are parts of it that could be categorized as, as, as inner city, as distressed, and parts of it that are very affluent. Okay. There's kind of a, an east-west divide within Broward County, and Parkland Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is on the privileged side of this. The high school was allegedly the safest, one of the safest high schools in Florida, one of the most high, highest performing high schools in Florida, very high median income, very high achievement. This is a place where parents are wanting to send their children. Yeah. Okay. There's the PR case on the one hand of we're fixing the school to prison pipeline by getting these numbers down. There's also a PR case that we are being inclusive and we are respecting students' civil rights by keeping everybody in the least restrictive environment. Right. And look how successful we are that we're mainstreaming these kids with disabilities and we're giving them a chance to be in a traditional classroom. And when I spoke to teachers at the specialized school he went to, their critique of it was, well, yeah, the reason they're mainstreaming these kids isn't necessarily to be inclusive or what's good for them. It's what's good for the bottom line financially of the school district because it's a heck of a lot cheaper to educate a student like Nicholas Cruz in a traditional school where you don't give him anything extra than it is to keep him in this school where there's a three to one adult ratio. Right. So there's this kind of alliance between financial bottom line of a bureaucracy and, you know, easy social justice rhetoric, PR point scoring on the disability side and more of the PR point scoring on the on the discipline side. Right. And you have, I think, a list in the book of things that if someone in Broward County had made a decision to go the other way, the shooting would very likely be averted, or at least there'd be a much higher chance of that. And that list is 42 items long. 42 items long. Yeah. And you think that the driving force behind these things is this policy environment. Mm -hmm. Let me ask, and, and I know you've been challenged on this on a number of fronts about how you relate what went on in Broward, the policy environment there that went so tragic, if it is indeed responsible, and the broader disciplinary policy across American schools. So Broward County, which is led by Superintendent Robert Runcie, was kind of a, a national model for discipline reform, right? Before coming to Broward, Runcie was Arnie Duncan's deputy in Chicago Public Schools. Duncan becomes Secretary of Education. Runcie goes to Broward. Runcie pioneers these policies. One of the very few I might almost say only, but I'm not 100% sure. One of the very few major districts to adopt these policies without being under investigation by the Office of Civil Rights. Broward's policies become a model for the nation. The Broad Foundation boasts of this. Robert Runcie has boasted about this. They were taken to the White House to show off their great success in reducing arrests. And a few months after Runcie launches the Promise Program, Arne Duncan issues a Dear Colleague letter on school discipline which changes the civil rights enforcement standard basically from disparate treatment to disparate impact. So in the past, if a black student and a white student did the same thing and were treated differently, that's a civil rights violation. Under the 2014 Dear Colleague letter, if three black students and one white student did the same thing and were disciplined equally, it may or may not be a civil rights violation depending on the racial composition of the school district. So many school districts were a foul of this explicitly ratio-based civil rights enforcement approach. Behind the scenes, the Department of Education 
had investigations that were explicitly designed to compel these districts to adopt a policy, a set of policies very similar to Broward's. They didn't go as far on the criminal justice side of it, but it was limit suspensions to you know, only instances of threat and safety, try to implement these restorative justice interventions. Basically, the policies that I hold responsible for the Parkland shooting were exported to schools across the country by the Steer Colleague letter. Right. So they might not be the same in degree, as you said, with no, Rest and Broward, but you think <clears throat> that they are the same in type as the policies that preexisted the Colleague letter. They were, you argue, a the form and sort of model that was exported through this letter. Mm-hmm. And the same, the same bureaucratic pressures and the same kind of bureaucratic slash ideological pressures that created the environment of dysfunction within Broward has been exported to these school districts through it. I mean, the the degree to which Broward pushed its schools to not arrest students is not something that is spread across the country, but the climate in which principals are being told by their superintendents, we're looking for you to make progress on discipline. We define progress by fewer suspensions, fewer expulsions, sure. fewer detentions. That dynamic has permeated a lot of American education at this right. point. Yeah. So this is what we talk about Campbell's Law, right? Mm-hmm. Any measure that is used to gauge the success of a social enterprise instead of going towards the actual aims of that enterprise, we start to turn to fulfill the measure. Yeah. The measure is lowering suspensions, then that's what defines good. Yeah. So I understand that. And certainly things in Broward were a tragic conclusion to that. In other districts across the nation where you draw this guidance as a parallel effort, is there evidence that the same reduction in strictness that you're afraid was complicit in what happened in Broward? Yeah. I mean, I think in many, many school districts, if you Google it, you will find hundreds, if not thousands of articles about this school district, things are getting better because look, suspensions, expulsions, arrests are down after they implemented these restorative justice policies. And I've made it somewhat of a mission to try to find all of the data points that I can around this to see, oh, is this, as all this stuff is happening, are we seeing similar dynamics play out within these school districts? And the teacher survey that I've mentioned in Broward, there are about a dozen school districts where the unions did similar surveys, and not all of them were that bad, but most of them were trending in a bad direction. I've looked at student surveys in a handful of districts where they make the data public on a school level and seen a pretty clear pattern of a higher percentage of students saying, you know, I don't feel safe, I don't feel respected. And the two or three, depending on how you counterweigh them, studies looking into the effects of suspension bans or restorative justice have found kind of negative academic impacts, sometimes quite substantial ones. So I think there's substantial cause for concern. How often do districts like Broward, they had the teachers union, I believe, mm-hmm. survey teachers. I've argued this before about, hey, if you want to know how policies are actually working out on the mm-hmm. ground, teachers will actually tell you and they're out there. So if you yeah. provide a way, do you know how frequently schools are asking, hey, teachers, how is this disciplinary reform working out? It's extremely infrequent. I mean, there are some states will do teacher surveys annually or biannually at the state level that very rarely kind of makes it into the public domain. I've only ever seen, and I've looked 
maybe more exhaustively than anybody into this. I've only ever seen four surveys by local unions where they gave teachers free response. And in all of those instances, you hear these horror stories of like, I was told that I can't send a student to the office unless there was blood. My administrator rips up these reports. So far less than we should be. And going back to Campbell's Law thing, I mean, suspensions might be a useful proxy, a useful measure of school climate if you're not trying to affect them. <laughs> but if you try to affect them, you have no, you no longer have a good idea as to whether or not the school is getting safer or more dangerous. And if you're not asking students, you're not asking teachers, things might look like they're getting better by the one indicator you have. But if you're not saying, hey, how are things going? You'll have no idea that they're getting worse. Certainly. Yeah. Lowered suspensions should be an indicator of good progress at the school, provided that suspensions are treated equally over time. Correct. If we change the way we use suspensions, then lowering suspensions may or may not be a good thing. Yeah. And it's very difficult to evaluate those things. How are things changing in Broward in the wake of this tragedy? They are not. Andy, Andrew Pollack, and I had some influence on the state and federal level when it comes to policy, but all of the Parkland parents kind of united to appeal to the community to vote the school board members out, to vote new blood in, and they failed in that. There is still a strong majority in favor of the superintendent. There have been kind of consistent articles in the press about how Broward still lags behind in implementing the measures of the state school safety law that was passed because of the shooting. You know, very little progress has been made in Broward. One sign of progress that I have seen is about 3,000 students, 3,000 fewer students are enrolled this year than last year. So parents are taking their kids out of the school district. And there's a state grand jury investigation into Broward County and other school districts on the question of, are they systematically obstructing justice? Are they knowingly falsifying state records when it comes to safety and crime? And how are they using the money the taxpayers give them for school safety? So I have some hope that something will come of that state investigation, but for the most part, very little has changed in Broward County. Andrew Pollock is a unique guy. He's not yes. your normal everyman. Where is he headed in the aftermath <clears throat> of Parkland and, and after writing this book? Yeah, I mean, his, his mission from maybe not day one, but his mission from very early on, the two words that he used incessantly were to expose and to hold accountable. And in large part, we accomplish the mission of exposure through the book. We have more of the story than, than anybody else and put it in a way that parents across the country can read and see and see whether or not these things do apply to their schools. And we're able to get you know, substantial traction in getting the basic message across, at least in conservative media, mainstream media was none too interested. And we've made as much progress towards holding people accountable as we could by the governor took the sheriff out of office. There's this grand jury investigation. So Andy has sold his house in Broward. He took his RV across the country up to Oregon, and he bought a ranch up there. And he's going to, bit by bit, build out the ranch and kind of live a, a rural hermit retired life at this point. To close out here, what kind of questions would you suggest concerned parents asked their <clears throat> school systems? Again, not about preventing the next school shooting. No, not necessarily. That's, that's, not, that's not the way you do this. But your concern about policy makes a lot of changes well short of that mm -hmm. that concerned parents should care about. So what and who should they be asking? Yeah, I mean, they should be asking their teachers. The key questions are, do your administrators support you on discipline? And do you think they're hiding 
problems? Are they sweeping problems under the rug? You could also ask your, your kids or your teachers, you know, is there a kid in my kid's classroom or in my kid's school who everybody knows doesn't belong there? who everybody's kind of scared about or worried about. And it, th- that's the, a trick because teachers can't say, yes, it's John Smith. No, but right? but they but they can say, yeah, there's there's some cause for concern or no, I don't quite feel supported or yeah, there's a lot of stuff that you don't hear about. And you know, teachers willingness to speak up directly will be strongly inhibited by the professional pressures that they face, right? I mean, if it gets back to their principal that they're talking about bad leadership, that's going to going to harm them. You very rarely hear teachers speaking out on record in the media about these problems, but they can speak to parents and parents can go to the school board. And if they have heard consistently, yeah, classrooms are getting more disorderly, all this stuff about lowering suspensions belies the true nature of what's happening in my kid's classroom, they can lobby their school board to take a hard look at it and to change these policies. Now, Max, you're a pretty conservative guy and I've known you for a while and I think you're a pretty conservative guy. One that is focused on education and doesn't often find a whole lot of common ground with the nation's teachers unions. Yeah. Certainly seems to me that there's some common interest between your perspective and teachers unions Mm -hmm. and that they are actually organizations that should be able to come together and fight against these devolutions of their own authority. They should be the ones to take power and say, this is not right. What would you encourage? teachers to do? I mean, teachers should aggressively lobby their unions to take action on this. The union's interests here or their actions here are kind of schizophrenic. On the one hand, at the local level, they do have a a reason and incentive, both kind of human and institutional, to serve their teachers and protect their teachers. At the national level, however, they are, if you'll excuse the somewhat conservative framing, just a, a foot soldier in the institutional left. And I've spoken to local teachers unions about this issue, and it's like I'm speaking to myself about it. And I've spoken to national teachers union leaders, and it's also like I'm speaking to myself about it until the point where it comes up with Trump and federal policy and social justice. And then they want to impose these policies that they know are bad on their teachers at a federal level because they want to stay on the right side of these federal debates. At the local level, teachers unions don't necessarily have to be beholden to that. So I think that a teacher's line of defense on this should be both to parents if they think the parents can be a way to get around to the school board and also to teachers unions if they can get together in sufficient mass, they can convince their local teachers unions to take some actions. Well, Max, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about your deep dive in Broward. Folks can get the book online. It's called Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nat. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Report Card, and special thanks to our guest, Max Eden. Thanks also to our producers who make this show possible. That includes Nathan May, Tyler Hoover, and Gage Hurley of Liquid Media. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast player so that you'll never miss another episode. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. We welcome comments, questions, or topic suggestions for future episodes. Send us a line at ed.podcast at AEI.org. Signing off for this episode, I'm Nat Malkus.